So we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's Gospel. And of course, what we have here is Luke's account as he has gathered the sources who were eyewitnesses and first-hand experiences of what it was that Jesus said. But it seems as though Jesus would, from time to time, teach the same material in different places. And of course, that would be entirely natural. It's almost impossible to imagine that the first disciples would be able to hear and understand everything that Jesus said after the first time of hearing. And so when we, when we hear and when we read these, these accounts of Jesus' teaching, they are perhaps collections of when it is that Jesus has used this same material on different occasions. And that's why when we look at Matthew's account and we look at Luke's account, we see some, not significant differences, but some nuances that are somewhat different from one another. In the passage that we're going to read in a moment, the two builders, there are just one or two differences to the parable that is recorded in Matthew chapter seven. And of course, this parable being so powerful, being so significant and, and ending, ending the most famous sermon that the world would ever hear, of course, this parable is gonna be used and retold time and time again. And when it's retold, perhaps we find that there are little nuances that are added or removed. Let's read from Luke chapter six and verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. The two builders, two people who are intent on establishing a place for their family, two people who are committed to what appears to be the same project, the same ends, two people who are focusing perhaps even on the same destiny. But there are two entirely different outcomes. In Matthew's Gospel, the man who here builds his house on the ground without digging down is a man who builds his house on the sand. Of course, if you've been to the Holy Land, you'll know that inevitably sand is pretty much everywhere. And this kind of, this grainy uh, substance that you, you see blown away at any moment is where 
the foolish man is building his house. The wise man, the person who is committed to establishing something that will weather the storm, that will meet any circumstance with stability and consistency, that person is a person that keeps digging until they find a solid platform on which to build. Now, you don't have to go very far in the Old Testament. Uh, One passage that immediately springs to mind is uh, Psalm 42, uh, the psalm of the deer panting for water like the soul of the psalmist desiring the Lord. In that psalm, as in many other psalms and in many other places of the Old Testament, it is the Lord who is the rock. Here Jesus is clearly identifying himself with the one who is known as the Lord in the Old Testament. So he's clearly identifying himself with God. He's saying, I'm the rock. And the way that you build your life on me, the rock, is that you hear what I say and you put into practice what you're hearing. And the putting into practice this this careful consideration is the digging down, is the necessary discipline that provides you, says Jesus, with a platform that will be unshaken, immovable, and able to provide you with a place of continuous security through your life. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the earthquake, the cultural earthquake that is shaking this nation and the nations of the world. In a time of shaking, surely there are great requirements, great necessities placed upon anyone who is wanting to have a life of stability and security to offer to themselves and to other people. Surely there is a great demand on that person to keep digging until their life is secure in the midst of the shaking. You're not worried when you hear about the collapse of the stock market. You're not concerned when you hear of mass riots and disturbances in cities around the world. You're not concerned about the disasters of environmental change and and you're not overwhelmed by the anxiety that grips the hearts and minds of so many in the population. I would suggest the vast majority of the population. The reason is not because you will not lose material things like everyone else. The reason is not because you will not suffer the loss that other people will suffer. The reason that you are secure is that the essential things of life, the vital things of life, will not be lost with everything else. So here's Jesus, he's he's bringing to conclusion this most important of proclamations, the clearest 
presentation of all that he's come to do, of all that he wants his disciples to understand. And he completes his sermon with this parable. A parable that no doubt is is reported and repeated time and time again. If Jesus completes the Sermon on the Mount with the parable of the wise and foolish builder, it must mean that this is something to which we have to pay attention. This must mean that this parable, in some sense, gathers up all of the significant things that Jesus is sharing with us. And in sharing with us, is instructing us to follow in our life. And so here's, here's, if you like, the summary of the parable of the wise and foolish builder. There are two questions There are two questions for every follower of Jesus to ask every day. And as you grow and mature, it'll be two questions that you ask over and over again throughout the day. It'll be two questions that you instruct your children to ask. It'll be questions that you encourage your spouse to ask. It'll be questions that you share in your house churches in your gatherings, in your workplaces amongst other believers and even amongst pre-Christians who are seeking to find a way to follow Jesus. Here are the two questions. What is Jesus saying? And what are you going to do about it? That's it. The wise man listens to the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. The wise man hears what it is that Jesus says and applies what it is that Jesus says in obedience in their life and they are the ones who are secure. The Christian life is a hard and narrow path but it's a very, very simple a very simple direction to follow. Hard and simple are quite different. The gospel of Jesus is not easy. It's hard. But the gospel of Jesus is not complex. It's simple. Simple and hard. Of course it's difficult to apply the words of Jesus. Of course it's difficult to consistently seek to obey what it is that Jesus is saying to you daily. Of course it's hard, but it's simple. Everybody can understand it. The youngest child here can understand these two questions. These are the two questions that were ringing in the ears of the first disciples at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that defined the ministry of Jesus, the sermon that has defined the emergence of Christian culture down through the centuries. These are the two questions. What is Jesus saying? And what am I going to do about it? Turn to your neighbour and say, what is Jesus saying? 
and now ask them, and now ask them, what are you going to do about it? So, all those people that have been in other services all these years, you've never seen them before. You didn't know that they were here, did you? So there are two, two kinds of people. There is the wise person and there is the foolish. And they build a different kind of house. It would appear as though, it would appear as though, as you go back through what it is that Jesus is saying, that, that, these, that these two alternatives are set up throughout the sermon that Jesus is sharing with his first disciples. Of course, the wise person is the one who, if you like, produces good fruit. From a good tree. The foolish person is is a person who is a bad tree. No other word for it. Who produces fruit that nobody wants. So how, how then are we to kind of grasp what it takes to be this wise person that is a good tree producing good fruit? What, is it, what does it take? Well, perhaps the way to understand it is to go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount as Luke presents it to us. Let's go back to verse 20 and let's look at the two alternatives that Jesus offers at the beginning of the sermon and therefore understand his train of thought as he teaches through this most marvelous of presentations to bring us to the conclusion that we want to be wise people. But get ready, because being the wise one who builds the secure and solid house is a person who Jesus describes at the beginning of the sermon who you might not want to be. Verse 20. Jesus, looking at his disciples, said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. 
Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Right at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus sets up the alternative. There are two audiences that he's addressing. One he describes as the poor. The other he describes as the rich. Now last week, we looked at the meaning of the word poor. This is not someone who is necessarily financially poor. This is not someone who is monetarily challenged. The word poor here is the word of describing a person who is crouching, a person that is bowed down, a person that is bent over. This person, Jesus says, the person that, that is bent over, that is bowing down, it's that person that receives the kingdom of God. And it's as though he puts a colon after that statement and then, and then expands on what it means to be a person who receives the kingdom. Because the kingdom is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is something that is not available unless the king gives it to us. And so the king will give according to his pleasure. The king will share according to his desire. Sally and I, we, we come from a kingdom, the United Kingdom. And um, we're very glad to have um, uh, decided to reject all monarchs and potentates and titles and law. You know, we have to do all of that when we become Americans. And, um, <laughs> and it means that, you know, obviously we're not welcome when we go back to England again. But, but it's very interesting that the, the honours list once a year come, come out. And members of our family have received various different honours. And the honours are honours that are given at the pleasure of Her Majesty. People are suggested and then she makes a decision as to who it is that's going to become a knight or a dame or somebody who has the order of the royal empire. I mean, there's all these different kind of honours that you receive, but they're given at the pleasure of the monarch. God looks down from heaven for who it is that will receive his pleasure. God observes humanity and he makes a decision as to who it is that will receive the, the, the revelation of the world that we will enter when Jesus returns. The kingdom that is coming, the kingdom that is not here fully expressed or fully consummated yet, the kingdom of heaven that, that we look for, we long for. We can taste the powers of the coming age, says the writer to the Hebrews. We can receive a touch of the future as the king of both past and present 
and future dispenses His grace and mercy and His kindness, a touch of His kingdom and one will be healed and another will be delivered. Another will be made glad. Another will be filled with joy. Another will be supplied supernatural provision. Another will know the abiding presence of Jesus. When God looks from his throne in heaven, he's looking for people who are bowed down. He's not looking for the people who are strong in themselves. He's not looking for the people with the straight backs and the high chins and the haughty looks. He's looking for the broken and the vulnerable and the frail and the failing. People who hunger for something better. People who hunger for something more. People who hunger for, for, I'm glad that you're awake by the way. It would have been terrible if that was the moment that you woke up, wasn't it? People who hunger for what it is that only God can provide. Of course, all of us are defined to some extent by, by, the, by the appetites of our life. Jesus says this, those who are bowed down, who maybe are even broken internally by a sense that the world is not right and hunger for a change. They're the ones who God says I'll fill. Those who know that there is winners and losers. Those who know that there are those who win because they get first to the finishing line. Those who know that there are people who will excel and exceed them and yet so often feel as though they are the losers. They're the ones who receive the kingdom because it's those who weep over their loss who will find great gain in heaven. Those who don't get many likes on Facebook. Those who struggle for any sense of approval amongst their peers and friends. Those who find it so difficult to raise their head above the parapet and say, I can be something. Those people who struggle with their sense of security, with their sense of significance, those people, they receive the kingdom and everything changes. 
It is the poor who receive the kingdom of God. So what is this to us? Well, Jesus, of course, creates this huge alternative in our minds, this, this, this distinction, this differentiation. When he says, the rich who have no interest in the future kingdom because they've received their comfort here. The rich who are full already and need no more. The rich who weep over no loss because they always win. The rich who get all of the thumbs up. Every like that anyone could want. They will be sad, says Jesus. Woe means sad, blessed means happy. There are happy people and there are sad people. Because here is the great differentiation in humanity. Either you embrace your need for God or you stand in your own resources. If you stand in your own resources, you choose the path of what Jesus calls the rich. If you look at yourself and you find that there is a place where you hunger for change in your life, you hunger for for change in the people around you, in the society as a whole. You hunger for, for something that will, that will empower you to be a better follower of Jesus. That person is a person who'll receive and be full. If you recognise there is a place in your life where despite the appearance of worshipping in a place like this in Kettering, in the early years of the 21st century, surrounded by wealth and, and, and incredible, in, incredible capacity for, for change and optimism. If in this place, there's some part of you where you know that you're a loser, and you weep over that loss. A lost relationship, a lost love, a lost opportunity, a lost sense of purpose, productivity. Any kind of loss, if you know that you have that place within you, then Jesus says, the kingdom is yours because you'll rejoice. You see, this is the key to understanding the gospel of Jesus. The key to understanding 
the teaching of Jesus, the key to understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We do the opposite of what the world instructs you to do. The world will tell you, focus on the strong stuff, the good stuff, the stuff that's all together and build your life there. But what happens is of course that we build our lives on our own resources and we invest in our own resources and we strengthen our own resources but our resources in comparison with God's resources are barely even registering on a scale of significance. They're idiotic by comparison. And here we are in our haughty pride saying, well, I've got a great education. I've got a wonderful person that I live with. My children, all their teeth are straight. I mean, my life is just wonderful. Building your life there will mean that you do not see the release and revelation of the good news of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is for another kind of person. It could well be a person that drives a nice car. It could be a person who lives in one of these delightful homes around here. It could be a person who on the outward observation looks like any other successful Kettering, Centerville kind of family. But they know in their hearts that they hunger and they weep and they lose and they fail and they struggle and they bow and they receive the kingdom. It's an amazing, it's too good to be true news, isn't it? It's just too good to be true news. Because this is all of us. This is where we live. This is who we are. And thank God we don't have to be that other kind of person who builds their life on what everybody else says is important. It means that we can live a life of generosity. It means that we can live a life of service. It means that we can understand that God has extended his kingdom to us and we live in a glorious existence, actually experiencing the foretaste of heaven. Imagine that. Jesus, as he unfolds the sermon, says that there are, there are pitfalls. For the poor, the pitfall is to begin to see yourself with a victim mentality, which means that you don't love 
generously. You don't love liberally. And you seek to defend yourself consistently. Jesus says, of course, if you live like this, you've got to receive the good things of the kingdom. And in receiving the good things of the kingdom, however you receive them, whatever brokenness was the context of your reception of the kingdom, whatever that context was, is not the thing that defines you. It is the reality that opens you to the kingdom, but it does not define you. And so Jesus says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. If somebody asks you for something, give them more than what they ask you for. What do you care? You've got the whole kingdom. You're not a victim. You're not a person that's defined by your brokenness. You're a person that's found brokenness to be the doorway to heaven. And so you have heaven. And to those who have a tendency towards being the rich in their own resources, standing in their own strength, he says, just remember this. You're not the judge of the world. Just because you think you're strong doesn't mean that you're right. And just because you think you're right doesn't mean that you can decide who's wrong. It's really interesting, isn't it? Don't you love the Sermon on the Mount? And so Jesus, as he concludes this most amazing presentation of the good news, says, and this is how you'll know who the poor are and who the rich are. The rich will look like fools because they've trusted in their own resources and they'll be swept away. The poor have realized that they have no resources that can secure them. They have no capacity that will anchor them. But now, because of that, they have all of the resources of heaven. They have the anchor that holds their soul, which God will never let go of. Amen. And so, of course, there will be those who just build their life on themselves and their own ideas and their own theology. And there will be those who will say, what's Jesus saying? Because that's what I need to hear. And I need to put that into practice. And sometimes we'll be aware of the fact that the thing that Jesus is saying today is the thing he said yesterday and we didn't put it into practice yesterday and so we need to do it today. 
But we just keep on going back to that place because that's our default. And so, the poor are the wise and the rich are the fools. There's a story of a Sunday school teacher who told the children of the Pharisee and the publican, as it says in the old translation. The sinner is there beating his breast, saying, woe is me. The Pharisee is there saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, like this sinner beside whom I'm standing. It's funny, isn't it, how the Pharisees always have an English accent. I feel a bit worried about that. (laughs) But here, the Sunday school teacher kind of tells the story and the kids are all kind of gog. And of course, the the whole point of it is that the, the Pharisee says that he's grateful that he's not like the sinner. And this is then what the Sunday school teacher says. She says, now let's thank Jesus that we're not like the Pharisee. And you're laughing because you're grateful that you're not like the Sunday school teacher. And I'm laughing because I'm grateful I'm not like you. It's amazing our capacity to assume that we're the good ones, isn't it? It's amazing our capacity. We just have unlimited capacity to think that we're right, to think that we're the ones that got it all straight. But what Jesus wants us to understand more than anything is that he has unlimited resources, unrivaled gifts, a grace that will capture your heart in every moment of every day if we will only find the place of brokenness within where we invite him to bring that grace. Paul, the mentor of Luke, puts it like this. Three times I asked the Lord to take away the thorn in the flesh, but the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, the power of the kingdom, is made perfect, is revealed, made complete, is made perfect in your weakness. I want to know the power of Jesus, as I'm sure you do. I want to know what it means to be filled with heavenly resources. I want to know what it's like for the things that I weep over the losses in my life, for those tears to be wiped away by heavenly hands. I want to know what it's like to be unconcerned about the approval of others because I have the smile of the Father. 
I want to know that every day. I want to live that gospel life, that too good to be true news kind of life. And so I know that today I have to invite Jesus into the place of my brokenness. As we come to communion, of course, we are confronted again with that great opportunity. Because Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body. It is the brokenness of Jesus that heals our brokenness within. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, drink this all of you, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Our brokenness is so often accompanied by our failure in sin. Jesus will never reject us on the basis of our brokenness and will always forgive the sin that accompanies our brokenness. His blood is ever available. Take this in remembrance of me. Now, remembrance means many things. But the Greek word literally means this. Do not forget who you are. And so as we receive the bread broken and the wine poured out, as we come again and recognize that this good news that we live in, that we experience, this kingdom that we long for that touches our lives as we recognize that today and as we receive the bread and the wine let us allow Jesus to step into our brokenness and turn our poverty into his wealth and today let's set aside our wealth so that we can receive what he has to offer, his resources. Amen.